Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Andertisha Fritz-Gerald, who has worked in education for 20 years. She's been a teacher, a curriculum specialist, and a district-level administrator. She's an international keynote speaker, award-winning author, and an inclusive practices implementation consultant. And I could not be more thrilled to have her on the show today. Welcome. I am thrilled you could join me today. So I love to start each episode with just inviting my guests to share a little bit about their journey in education. Where did you begin? How did you get to where you are today? What's inspired your work? So my journey to education was a non-traditional one, I guess you could say. Um, All while I was in middle school and high school, I was in programs to become an engineer. And Mm -hmm. so I thought that that's what I wanted to do. My first two years in college, I majored in chemical engineering and I had some fantastic opportunities to intern. And so I interned at Polytech. It's a minority owned engineering firm and I helped with architectural drawings and I just was not enthused about it. (laughs) It didn't seem uh, very appealing to me, but I didn't want to give up because I figured I'm supposed to be an engineer. Let's give it another shot. And so I took an internship at NASA. Now, what I do know is that if I was supposed to be an engineer, then NASA (laughs) would have been a dream come true. But um, while I was sitting at the Advanced Communication Technology Satellite Master Ground Station, I learned a lot and I had an opportunity to see lots of really interesting and cool things, but it didn't set my heart ablaze. Mm. Um, Ever the optimist, I took a third internship (laughs) in the chemical engineering department at Cleveland State. And while I learned a lot about how protein behaves under different um, environments, I did not feel that this was what I was supposed to do forever. I changed my major to English. And even after I did that, because I love literature, I love the analysis of literature, Mm -hmm. poetry, and all of those things, I still didn't feel really fulfilled. I didn't know um, what I would do with the English degree. And so there was a program that was hiring for residential assistants for the summer to live in residence with 100 uh, potential first-generation college students between the grades of nine and 12. And so it was the Upward Bound program, which is a federal program, right. a TRIO program. And um, I lived in residence with 100 ninth through 12th graders wow. for six weeks. <laughs> and I absolutely found my calling. I knew that it was what I was supposed to do, helping the um, students find their passions and encouraging them to consider their choices and look at different career fields. I fell in love and I knew that at that moment, at the end of that summer, that I wanted to be a teacher. Wow. And you've moved from teacher, you've gone to administration. What are some of the roles that you have inhabited in the education space? I have had such an amazing time um, learning more about myself while helping others to learn about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I taught English for about seven or eight years in um, a a public school district. And um, I made a commitment to urban education. I also um, was a curriculum specialist at the building level. Um, I've helped uh, craft curriculum. I I took on the role of department chair um, in administration. Uh, at the district level, mm-hmm. I've been a, a curriculum administrator for secondary and then teaching, learning and innovation for pre-K through 12. Um, I've also done federal programs where I learned a lot about grants and writing grants to meet the educational needs of learners. And I did that for about five years. And most recently, I've taken on a new role, um, a new challenge of <laughs> human resources director. And so I'm learning a lot and stretching a lot, but really helping the organization to find talent that believes in our learners and will push them to their highest level. Wow. So a lot of different hats in education for sure. And how I discovered your work was really 
I, I had heard of you. We've like known each other on Twitter or I've seen you on Twitter. But when I read your book, Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to have this woman on the podcast. I want to <laughs> explore this. I've obviously been thrown into the deep end of UDL and love every moment of it in my work with um, Katie Novak. So I yes. want to talk about your book because I think it is incredibly powerful. And I love the 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 ways in which you talk about universally designing to really create these pathways for success for learners, um, all learners. And so I want to start with definitions because I sometimes feel like in education, these terms are thrown around without really being pinned to clear definitions. So I'd love for you to start by just defining when you write about anti-racism, what does that mean for you? And then also universal design for learning. What does that mean for you? How do you define those two big terms which are at the heart of this book? So when I talk about anti-racism, I realize that people will have emotions and um, background that's attached to the word. But when I talk about anti-racism, basically it, it involves two steps. Number one, identifying where racism is showing up. And then the anti-racism part is the work or the actions associated with tearing down racism. And so um, it could be in language, it could be in curricula, it could be in policies, but wherever racism is showing up, anti-racism is the actions associated with tearing down racism. I love that. So, so clear. Thank you for that. And Universal Design for Learning is a framework created by CAST, and um, they created these guidelines that really take in 25 years of brain research on the best in teaching and learning. And these guidelines shape how we can design our classrooms to allow more on-ramps for learners of all kinds. It takes into account the variances and the differences in how we learn and then builds a structure that allows everyone to have access and show what they know in a way that's meaningful to them. So I see universal design for learning as a liberatory tool that is inherently anti-racist because we use it to tear down the barriers of racism in education. And when you think about the goal of a universally designed anti-racist classroom, what is that ultimate goal from your perspective? The ultimate goal of the anti-racist universally designed learning environment is to ensure that Black and brown learners who have been excluded and on the margins of learning environments for years because um, they've just been designed for a different norm, Mm -hmm. for Black and brown and indigenous learners to feel valued and seen, to have their voices invited to the table in meaningful ways, to have options and choices where compliance has been king in the past. They will get to make powerful choices that govern their best outcomes. And then they'll have options and use agency to show what they know in a way that is meaningful and culturally relevant to them. I love that. And you really start the book, you ground it in this concept of honor. You talk a lot about the power structures in the classroom, which is something I think about a lot, but you really talk about honor and honoring our students, which I love. And you describe this code of honor that you've developed. So I wondered if you could give us kind of an overview of this code of honor that you describe in your book and and how you maybe encourage teachers when you work with them, have conversations to really proactively and intentionally implement this code of honor? Yes. Um, So the code of honor came out of a, um, I read an article by Lisa Delpit Mm -hmm. and she talked about these codes of power that are in play in the classroom. She talked about that every code of power has these rules and the rules are created by the people who have the power. Mm -hmm. And so as I was reading her article, which was written in 1988, I started thinking to myself um, that what would be the antidote to this power structure that exists? And to me, it's honor. And so when we think about power, issues of power being enacted in the classroom, we think of compliance, that there's Mm -hmm. someone in charge that makes the decisions, that um, takes on the outcomes that really 
does not allow anyone else's voice to be as important or heard. And the opposite of that is a culture of honor. And a culture of honor recognizes the past and where power structures may have been limiting before, and then it intentionally tears down or abolishes the limitation of the power structure at hand. And so when the power structure is torn down, that allows every member of the learning community to make decisions for themselves that that support will show up in our structures and the choices that are available. Um, and just the way that we shape the learning community, every member of the learning community will be in a position of power, mm -hmm. a position of authority. And honestly, Every member of the learning community has power the moment they walk into the learning environment. It's just whether the structure in place will allow for that power to be used or if it will shut it down. And so a, com a learning community of honor creates opportunities for learners to make decisions for themselves, to evaluate their best possible outcomes, to make changes, and to just really explore what it means to look at their decisions and see if it's bringing about the outcome that they've chosen for themselves. Yeah. And as I think about teachers, you know, obviously everybody's kind of in end of year mode at this moment or starting to relax into summer, maybe by the time this is um, something they'll be listening to. But I think about how fundamentally different it would be to prepare for a school year, really thinking about not just handing out rules, giving kids expectations that they had no part in co-creating or constructing, but instead really approaching our work with learners from a place of honor. And I know you've you've likely seen lots of teachers kind of thinking about this, implementing strategies. Are there norms or routines or behaviors either in the start of a school year that you've seen that have been particularly effective as teachers really embrace this idea of honoring learners um, and grounding that work in kind of honor as opposed to, you know, kind of starting the year or continuing their work with learners under kind of the normal power structures that exist, where a lot of teachers might not even be questioning those power structures and the impact on students. I think that there are so many things that we can do to communicate our humanness mm -hmm. as teachers and invite the humanity of the learners who we are serving at that time. One of the most important things to do is to think about how to co-create classroom expectations. Um, I've seen over the years, many times teachers have a syllabus prepared. Mm -hmm. The moment students walk in, they've, you know, sent it home and said, you know, get your parents to sign off on it. This is the, the message of power that you don't have much say here, that everything is already set when you walk in. Mm -hmm. You'll do what I say or else. And so that puts us in this power struggle. And what if we change that to say, I have some ideas on the outcomes for this course. However, the pathway to the outcome will be personalized by you. Mm -hmm. What do you want to learn? What do you want to know? How do you best show what you know? And how can I best serve you? And then from that, there are things that you need to learn. There are things that I need to be in place in order to teach. Let's talk about what those are together and co-create a set of expectations. And then let's also plan ahead on what happens when what you need and what I need imposes upon one another. Mm -hmm. How do we resolve that conflict? The moment you begin sharing those, it sends a message to the brain that you are safe here and you also have a say here. And when you feel safe and you feel that you have a say, then you're more likely to invest deeply and you'll be able to see yourself in the curriculum in the way that the curriculum is delivered because you've made decisions about that. Yeah. I A lot of what I talk about when I work with teachers around blended learning is really seeing students as true partners in all yes. part of the learning process. And your point about the personalized pathways, it does require that students and teachers work together because we can't magically know what every student needs at every moment. They have to have that voice. They have to have that agency. And as I was reading your book, the point you kept making about shifting kind of control from teacher to learner and how important it is, especially if we want to, you know, cultivate these expert learners to give them those opportunities to control 
parts of their learning journey, parts of the learning experience. Um, it was something that just I, it very much overlaps with messaging that I've been kind of using in my work with teachers. And so I'm curious, you know, this release of control is really hard for teachers. I'm sure you've heard that. They express concern oh, yes. <laughs> about, oh my gosh, what are students going to do if I kind of relinquish control? Will they make smart choices? Will, will they make the best um, decisions? And, you know, quite frankly, the answer is sometimes no, but that's part of the journey. So how do you encourage teachers you worked with to kind of understand the importance of this transfer of control from teacher to learner and then the impact that that can have on learners? I think it's important, particularly for teachers of students of color, to understand that it is quite possible for learners to have gone through their entire academic career without being able to make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. If the learner is not skilled in how they learn and what they need to optimize every learning environment, then we cheat them of the agency that they'll need to be successful in the workplace, in the military, mm -hmm. and in their future decision-making. Our classrooms are the perfect environment for learners to practice the skills that they will need to use for the rest of their lives. And so unless our plan is to control them forever and to drive them around to wherever they need to go, make decisions for them, help them spend their money. Then we have to relinquish control because they are human beings mm -hmm. who have a future in decision making and their future starts right now. No matter if they're pre-K or um, GED. It doesn't matter. We need to release that control because ultimately they will be making decisions for the rest of their lives. What better time to get coaching and feedback and learn more about how you learn and what you need to learn than right now? Yeah. And that's such a great point, right? Because with that increased responsibility over their learning, they do start to understand themselves as learners so much more completely and deeply. And I know that empowering students to take control of their learning is really key to developing that expert learner, which I threw out that term and I started by saying we were going to define <laughs> terms. So I would love for you to kind of tell the listeners, what do we mean when we talk about expert learning? Because I know this is a really big focus for in universal design for learning? When you talk about expert learner, um, you think about knowing how you learn and then being able to customize any environment to meet those needs. So that means that you'll know what resources you need You'll know um, what goal you have and be strategic about how you reach that goal. And then you'll find a deeper purpose for the learning that motivates you along the way, even if the content is not interesting to you. Mm -hmm. And so expert learners are strategic and goal-directed, resourceful and knowledgeable, and then purposeful and motivated. And that helps them set their goals, monitor their progress toward the goal, and then stay motivated to endure until they get to the goal. Right. And so how can, like, what specific strategies can teachers use to help students who've been marginalized, unfairly labeled, maybe haven't had a lot of, haven't experienced a lot of academic success to realize that they have the potential and the ability to become those expert learners? Like everybody can be an expert learner, but how do we support that? What specific things can teachers do? The first thing that teachers can do is take a look at their own biases. Um, what decisions are you making for learners? What barriers are you designing around, but you're not talking to the learners about? And so um, one of the things we have to do is trust that learners can, that they can make decisions for themselves, that they can monitor their progress toward the goal. And then we support them with a menu of options that they can choose from until they find what's right for them. And so I think about my son who just recently discovered that in order for him to find the motivation to read a book from cover to cover, he needs to have a relationship with the characters at the beginning. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, so if you need to have a relationship with the characters, what do you do? Um, so first he started like mapping out what the characters did or what he thought they looked like. And he found that that was just not for him. But he realized that when he listened to an audiobook, there was someone who was interpreting the voices of the character that gave color through the sounds of their words. Mm -hmm. And that was enough for him to just get involved with the characters just enough. So he would read maybe the first two chapters along with the audiobook and then abandon the audiobook and finish the book in print. 
Well, he found and unlocked a key to what he needed to just get himself motivated to complete the goal. He found a strategy and he did this through a number of trial and errors um, in order to find what they need. And so we have that same lesson resonates with me. It resonates with other learners that we at the beginning of the year or whenever we pick up these strategies that we will introduce our learners to a number of different strategies and then have them evaluate. What was your best outcome? Mm -hmm. What felt best to you? And even if it's something as simple as choosing where you sit Mm -hmm. or if your camera is on or off, we have to have these wraparound conversations to say, did that work well for you? Okay, it was comfortable for you, but did the comfort get you what you really wanted? And that's the learning or whatever the objective is, or did you make a plan? And so we continue to ask these processing questions so that we are not deciding what the best intervention is, or we're not deciding what the optimal environment for their learning is, Mm -hmm. but we're trusting them to become what they really are. And that's experts on themselves, experts on how they learn. And then they verify what they think is going to work for them through the outcomes that they achieve. Yeah. And I think as teachers, and I know I was so much more rigid in the beginning of my teaching profession. So I was also an English teacher at the high school level for years. And I remember early on feeling like, well, when I would read, classic annotations really worked well for me to process the text. And so I started my teaching career, like forcing that strategy on every (laughs) child because I was like, it worked for me, (laughs) right? It's going to work for everybody. And then in feedback, every semester, students would say like, I don't like annotating. I wish we annotated less. This is not for me. And I remember finally hitting that point in my career where I don't know what makes you a little bit more flexible with time and experience where I thought, okay, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to provide, like you're saying, a, a few different strategies. We'll spend a week or two on each one. And then moving forward, students can decide, do you want to do classic annotation strategies? Do you want to do a window note-taking strategy? Would you like to draw sketch notes? Would you cr- mm-hmm. for, you know, prefer to do an audio recording of a, a summary or key points. And it was so fascinating because after having just a little bit of experience with each, learners began to realize exactly what you're saying. What is working best for me? What's really helping me understand this text on a deep level? And then when I would give that feedback form, I was no longer hearing about how much they hated annotations because they had some agency to say, you know, of these collection of strategies, this one is actually working best for me. And they can transfer that knowledge about themselves to every learning environment they go in. So it makes them a stronger student in science class because Mm -hmm. they know here's a strategy that works for me. That makes them stronger in maybe career in tech or when they're filling out an application, they have a set of skills that they know, hey, this is what I need in order to be successful when I am doing X, Y, or Z. And that to me, um, those moments where the light bulb clicks for a learner about how they learn Mm -hmm. are so much more valuable than just having them have a light bulb about the content itself. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So universal design for learning, as you've said, is really about educators intentionally looking for and removing barriers. And you talk about the importance of the anti-racist teachers recognizing removing these racist barriers to learning. And in your book, you encourage teachers to ask questions that are designed to help them evaluate their teaching. Can you share some of the questions you think teachers should be asking to identify those racist barriers to learning that exist in the curriculum, maybe in their rules, expectations, norms, those kind of power dynamics we talked about earlier? You know, when we think about um, what it will take for students of color to feel welcome, seen, supported, and challenged. We really have to look at what in our curriculum we've selected as valuable or normal. Um, And many times when we evaluate our curricula, we'll see that white supremacy shows up that because it's normal for white people or for those who have been in the seat of power for so long that we force it on others Mm -hmm. as normal. And so ask yourself, what tenets are you basing this work on? Why is this important? Is there a way that we can show appreciation or openness to other cultures being reflected in our work? Mm -hmm. There was an article that I read um, 
and it was Harvard students who were demanding that the School of Architecture take into account um, some of their experiences and make a change in the curricula. Are we open to hearing the experience of black and brown students, of indigenous students, and not just hearing their experience, but making changes to our work based on what they've encountered? And this, this is the work of anti-racism wherever racism is showing up. If it's showing up in our assessments, if it's showing up in the way that we are um, only giving one way of taking information in or giving information out. Mm -hmm. um, I think about so many years when I was a student, I was forced to complete these outlines to do an essay. Mm -hmm. The outline was not helpful to me. It did not help me to uh, think through my thoughts. And so for many years, I would sort through my thoughts my way mm -hmm. and then translate that into what I was told was the right way to do it and put it into the essay and then turn it in only for someone else as a measure of compliance. And so how many activities are our learners taking on that have nothing to do with their own learning? And we have to take that information, know that there is not one right way to do anything, but we have to create on-ramps for every learner to see themselves, to express themselves, and then to find the tools that help them to navigate through. Yeah. Well, and you, oh, gosh, I think about your example and how many kids are forced to jump through these hoops, whether it was early on my making them annotate or your teacher making you do an outline that isn't actually the best way for you to plan or prepare for or organize your thoughts and how often students are asked to do those things in one particular way that doesn't feel relevant to them, that doesn't feel helpful or productive and how alienating that must be from their experience or how just defeating, like no wonder they're not engaging or motivated if they feel they're being asked to do things that don't actually serve them as a learner. Catlin, do you know that Black students are three times more likely to be suspended from school than their white counterparts. And many times when they're speaking up to advocate for themselves, it's viewed as disrespect and then they are removed from the educational setting. 12% of Black students are held back um, in, before they even get to the ninth grade. So many students of color are not even exposed to grade level standards because someone has deemed that they're not ready. And so when we think about the impact of the one right way mm -hmm. or the biases that we enact on each classroom because of the power that we have, then we really have to pause and think who's being impacted the most. And our children of color have been um, the ones that Gloria Latson Billings said that America owes them the debt of education mm -hmm. instead of always highlighting that there's this achievement gap. And so right. we have to really look at our practices, our beliefs, who they're impacting, and we have to make a change. And this is why I wrote the book Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, because many of the tenets that have impacted education for Black and Brown learners are racism in action. And it hides behind other names and other standards. But until we create classrooms where there is support for every learner, where there is welcome, and that the picture of success is whoever walks in that classroom, then we have work to do. I, you know, I was reading and I came across the quote um, from Elena Aguilar, who actually I had on a previous podcast episode. And you quoted her um, when she said, whether in conversation or during a class, whoever intends to build trust needs to have five positive or neutral interactions with another person for every one corrective piece of feedback, which I loved that reminder about just raising some awareness about how we interact with our learners, how we treat them, you know, if they are speaking up, how we respond to learners. And you emphasize that this can help teachers to really develop trust and kind of decrease the stress of being in a classroom. Are there any additional pieces of advice that you give to teachers about how they can really proactively build trust and cultivate respect in these classrooms where students maybe classically haven't felt super safe in a classroom or felt comfortable taking risks or felt like equal members of a class community, either because the teacher has all the power or the, the students don't interact very often. So how do we proactively build that trust and cultivate respect among students and with our students? 
So when I think about creating trust in the book, I talk about David Rock's Mm -hmm. research Mm -hmm. about the Terra quotient. And I'll use the word that he used um, uses to describe what happens in the brain when we feel that there's a threat. And part of universal design for learning is to design to minimize threats or barriers. And so for Black, Brown, Indigenous learners who have um, a um, who have distrust because those rules of power have impacted how they interact with the classroom for students who have been suspended, who are taking away the message, you don't belong here. Um, for students who have not experienced academic success, there is this mistrust and they think maybe I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't know enough, but actually our design is flawed. The children are not broken. Mm-hmm. The design is broken. The curriculum is broken. And so he talks about these four um, areas that really um, hone in and send the message to the brain, you're safe here. Without the brain picking up this safety, then learning is virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. And so there are four things that we can do. Um, the first one is to, uh, the the brain is looking to find um, when the students enter, mm-hmm that they belong there. And so when we call each student by name, when we offer, um, as we've seen the videos of the specialized handshakes, yeah. when when we have everyone to take on a responsibility and be a part of the community, that this sends a message to the brain, you belong here. So um, the second one is expectation. If they know what to expect from us, simply putting an agenda on the board or saying, hey, we have four stops for today's lesson. And I model this in the professional development and coaching that I do. I always let people know, hey, we have four stops. Here's the name of the four stops. So if something is coming that may cause anxiety or they say, oh, I don't know this or maybe I messed up on it before, this gives them a chance to prepare for that part of the lesson. Maybe review what's happening after, maybe send a summary just so that they can check in. The R is for rank. And basically the brand is scanning to see whose status is higher, mine or yours. Mm-hmm. And so we can adjust our proximity that we don't have to stand and deliver, that we'll have a seat or maybe use circles. Or we invite students to take leadership in ways that are meaningful to them. And then we ask them for their feedback that says, your voice yes. is important to me, that I lay down my power in order to honor yours. And the last one is A, that's autonomy. And autonomy brings feelings of safety. So every time a student gets to make a decision for themselves, we send a message to the brain that you're safe. Um, when they get to choose how they lend their voice to the conversation, maybe in voice or maybe with pictures, maybe in a text format, when they can give suggestions or when there's flexibility on how an assignment is judged or when an assignment is judged. I can't tell you how many students gave me feedback when I said to them, you let me know when you're ready for your paper to be evaluated. Hey, we'll have three people of your choosing to evaluate it before me, but you let me know when you're ready. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of examples for you to evaluate yourself and say, hey, I think my opening is really strong or I would like to get some help on this and you know exactly where you go to, to get what you need. This sends the message that you have some say in your outcome. It's not just about the teacher telling you, but we have to send the message that every learner comes in rich, rich with information and experiences, that you don't come empty-handed, that you're welcomed and valuable, and that we have to craft our design to tell them over and over again, you have something to offer here, and where you want to go is important to me. I will design to help you meet your goals. I love that. And I think it's it really is about teachers embracing that flexibility. And so often learning happens on a teacher timeline. And that example of you let me know when it's ready. You let me know who you want to work with in a peer evaluation scenario. I could see how that would lower that effective filter and the fear associated with peer evaluation. It would lower the stress of feeling like I have to churn out a 
a specific product on a specific timeline that isn't actually my timeline. Right. But I think a lot of that flexibility in design and facilitation is really scary for teachers. There's that fear of, well, if I'm flexible, if I, you know, allow for variable timelines, then how will we get through everything? And I'm constantly so frustrated by that, you know, the coverage mentality that's really thrust on so many educators. But the way you're describing that flexibility, I could just see it being such a game changer for learners. And again, all part of honoring them and their process. Yes. And we have to be mindful, too, with educators who are feeling that fear that um, we have to change systems in our schools that push us to be um this curriculum on this day at this time. And we have to continue to push back until every system, we tear down racism wherever it shows up. Mm -hmm. And so the timed um, compliance mindset does not work for our learners of color. It does not work for our students with disabilities. It does not work for many students who have been on the margins of making those decisions. And with this format, I think you go farther, faster, because students have some say in how they get there. Yeah, I agree. And so this is challenging work. It's a big shift for a lot of teachers um, to really think about identifying barriers in general, racist barriers that might make it hard for all students to really be successful, feel successful in a classroom. And you encourage teachers to find a tribe to connect with in this important work. So why is developing connections, being part of a tribe, why do you feel like that's so critical for teachers who really have this commitment to anti-racism, who really want to explore the power of universal design to remove those barriers? As I've learned more from my indigenous brothers and sisters, um, I do encourage teachers to find a circle instead of using the word tribe. And when we know better, we do better. And one of the things I always say in my trainings is that um, we are free to make mistakes. And when we know better, we do better. And so um, we can take away the stress of maybe using the wrong words or um, not getting it right, because ultimately when we learn, we put that learning into action. And so I do encourage teachers to find a circle, to find those that they can connect with, because this work is hard work, but it's also hard work. And when there is hard work to be done, we can learn so much more from others who are thinking with us, who are challenging us and pushing us so that we're serving every student the best that we can. And so um, I just, this is not the kind of work you do in isolation or alone. It requires the voices of others to make sure that we are on the right path and that we're pursuing this path together. So part of it is motivation. The other part is just inviting other viewpoints so that we are always challenged and pushed toward the best path for every learner. Right. And if you find your circle, you cultivate a group of educators, I imagine, who you can lean on and idea share with, then you can also maybe if that that circles on your campus, even start to push some of the leadership in your community, on your campus and district to really maybe reconsider some of that pressure that's on teachers to focus on coverage and really start to place the emphasis on these other areas that we know are so important for students to really be successful. It's, it's a lot easier to do when you have have a circle of people behind you instead of being that lone voice advocating for change on a campus, in a district, in a community. Absolutely. And I would also say that if you find yourself in a community where you're trying to embrace anti-racism and universal design for learning, you're making um, decisions for students that are not traditional, but you're seeing the growth, I would encourage you to find the community um, that I love so much on Twitter. That's hashtag UDL chat and also hashtag anti-racist UDL. And um, I'm telling you, you put up an idea or a dilemma and there are people who will link you to so many resources and just cheer you on. Um, it is one of the most fabulous communities. And I just really appreciate both UDL chat and anti-racist UDL communities. Wonderful. Because I was going to ask you, where do you suggest people connect? Because it may not be that you have other folks on your physical camp campus doing this, but I as well have just found some incredible communities on Twitter and people who have been 
so generous and and very kind in correction, you know, just saying, hey, you might want to consider. And those moments are such an important part of my learning. And, you know, as educators, we, we don't have to feel like we have to have it all perfect or figured out, but it's really just like anything else, that commitment to keep learning and doing better. So yes, we make mistakes, uh we fall. And when we learn from them, that means we fall forward. Yes. I love that. So in the foreword of your book, which was so moving, um, Samaria Rice, mother of Tamir Rice, was killed by Cleveland police. Really, she's writes this beautiful introduction and she really challenges teachers to ask the question, what is your motive for teaching? Like what motivates this work? And she encourages teachers to focus on building relationships, not just with students, but also with their parents. So how do you feel like teachers can intentionally develop a relationship with their students' parents? How do you suggest, you know, because there are barriers to parent participation in kind of the traditional school events that take place. So how do we almost take this UDL perspective of removing barriers and also apply that to parent participation or communicating with parents or trying to connect with parents so that they feel like they're part of this educational journey that their child is on. You know, Samaria, uh, I'm just so grateful for her voice in this project. Um, She is a champion not only for civil rights, but also for the rights of learners educationally. She shares about her son, Tamir, and in um, us working together as she was writing the foreword, she shared with me that he loved to learn through movement, that he loved to mm-hmm. learn through sports. And so as we partner with parents, we've learned through COVID that parents are absolutely vital mm-hmm. to providing that the education for the learners. Um, and so in this wonderful opportunity from a terrible pandemic. We have to keep this level of involvement of parents. And basically we have to look at the offerings that we're giving to parents. Are we sending home homework that is compliance-based, meaning here's a sheet, get it done because I said so. Mm -hmm. Or are we sending home um, activities that allow families to connect together and reclaim time. Maybe we send home a game. Maybe we send home just a survey question so that they we can find out these funds of knowledge that they have that invite them to the classroom in a different way. Um, something that happened for me that really helped me to connect with families is that um, I began to remix homework. And so um, homework was a time that I just, I didn't want to regurgitate what was in the classroom because the parent wasn't in the classroom. Right. But I wanted to give them time to connect. So I sent home a question. I was getting ready to teach Romeo and Juliet. The question was, do you believe in love at first sight? Here was the homework. You have to ask three adults. One of them has to live in your home, but three adults, they get to choose who those adults are. You can do it by phone, whatever. Bring the data back and let's talk. Mm-hmm. The next morning when I get to the school, um, there was a parent who came to my classroom, he said, I want to have a word with you about last night's homework. Oh, dear. <laughs> and so I started to recount in my mind, how could this have gone wrong? What question did I give? Like, I was really right. thinking it through. But he said, I wanted, I didn't want to send my answer. I wanted to bring my answer. And so he said, can I share the story with the class? And it was a risk because I didn't know where this was going. But he did share that he does believe in love at first sight. And he had met the, my student's mom and he married her three months later. Oh and he goodness. shared with the entire class that he saw the legs first and knew that he had to marry this woman. Oh my, my students sat in the class and said, are you kidding me? So think about it. A homework assignment that allowed a student to hear a story from his parents that he never knew before. That convinced me that the homework that I had been sending was not good enough and that I needed to connect families around stories with games, with activities that led to a deeper connection at the family, but also a deeper connection with the content. And so as we think about anti-racist UDL, we have to send home questions that are thought provoking. We have to empower parents with resources that they need, not just to help kids complete an assignment, but to help families connect around common goals and around content at the same time. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. And so much of what I these examples you're giving are making me think of is also taking homework from this very pen and paper, fingers on computer keys, isolating experience and making it interactive, making it conversational. And one of my favorite, um, I was listening to a podcast uh, and Zaretta Hammond was on it. And she talked about how parents are the first teachers and how do we invite them into this? How do we ask them for feedback about the things we're sending home and the the ways their their kids are responding to it? And I just thought it was such a such a beautiful point. And I think those conversation starters that that question and then treating it like data, right? Like everybody's bringing in their data about how their adults feel about this love at first sight. I think that's such a wonderful way to include the people in our students' lives. It's honor and action, you know, and parents have lots of information that they can empower us with about their child. And then we can then mirror that information right back to them when we create those loops of dialogue. Yes. Oh, I love that. Loops of dialogue. So I always end by inviting my guests to share some advice about how they have personally kind of tried to find or maintain balance in either their personal and or professional lives. Um, So you can kind of take it whatever direction you want. But is there a lesson you feel like you've learned about balance or a routine or something you've adopted to help create more balance in your own life? I feel like this is something I am an expert learner on. I have definitely not arrived, but I'm still learning. And I think that one one of the areas, um, this conversation about honor, um, I have been so intrigued by listening to my husband and my children when we talk through some of these concepts of anti-racism and um, honor. My son, he won an essay contest here recently where he wrote an essay about an experience where a student called him the N-word. And while he was traumatized by the exchange, he was more focused on the teacher who heard it but did nothing to intervene. Oh my gosh. Um, He wrote these words and as he shared the story with me and when it happened, he shared it with me. We worked through it. Um, We made some changes, um, but to hear him reflect on knowing that a teacher knew that a teacher heard, but made the decision to do nothing, made it so much more important for me to complete this book to get the book out there because if we do nothing about the racism that shows up in our policies, the racism that shows up in our curricula, the racism that shows up in what we deliver as assignments and what we think is right, then we are just like that teacher. And I couldn't just that moment of knowing that there have been times where I didn't speak up, Mm -hmm. that there have been times where maybe I've upheld a standard that was racist. And to reflect on those moments and say, but but from here on out, I will do my best to never be silent, to speak up where I'm called to speak, to move and be and protest where I need to protest and to invite my children and my family to speak into what that means for me and for them to allow me to speak into what that means for them, that this is a decision that many people will not like, Mm. that is uncomfortable, that will no doubt spark protest. But we've made a decision as a family to endure whatever comes so that the next generation will not be marginalized in the way that we, when we share our experiences with each other, we all have. And so my life balance with my personal is that we made a family decision to take a step into activism Hmm. in various ways before the same reason is what's right. Mm, Thank you so much. This was like such a pleasure and such an honor for me. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your book. And I do feel for my own work, this is an area I want to shine light on and I want to learn more about and I want to learn more so I can do better. So I just want to thank you for the ideas in the book, the strategies, the the way in which you, you write about these things is just incredibly powerful. So it's been a real pleasure to get to talk with you. Thank you, Catelyn. Thank you for exemplifying allyship by amplifying this work and this book. And I I just appreciate that. 
part of what I love about hosting a podcast is just the opportunity to learn from such incredible people. And after I read Andertisha's book, I knew I wanted to speak with her because it was so incredibly powerful and really caused me to stretch and think and grow. And even in this conversation, there are some things that she said that just really resonated for me. This statement that she said that UDL or Universal Design for Learning is a liberatory tool that is inherently anti-racist because we use it to tear down the barriers of racism in education. And so as educators, being so aware that it's part of our work to look for, identify, and remove those barriers so all students can be successful. I also love that she calls this heart work. And that's something that I've heard her say before, but it's so true. And I think having a reminder just every once in a while that this is like heart work that we're doing and that when we embark on trying to kind of understand how to be anti-racist, how to identify these barriers, how to embrace UDL, to remove barriers for all learners and to develop these expert learners, we also benefit from having a circle of people with whom we can idea share, ask questions, and quite frankly, learn from. I know I've had moments where I've shared something and people have gently on Twitter said, hey, Catlin, you might want to use a different quote. And It's sometimes it's jarring to hear, but I always take a step back and feel so grateful that I have people in my life who are honest with me and are helping me to learn. And, you know, as she said, when we know better, we can do better. And I think this book is a wonderful opportunity to explore the the ways in which universal design for learning can really help us to identify these barriers and remove them so that students who, you know, have been marginalized in the past have opportunities to be successful and to thrive because all students have the ability to be those expert learners. So it's summertime. Hopefully you don't need a teacher tip to relax, but if you're struggling to carve out time for yourself because you have little ones or maybe you're working summer school or you have something else kind of drawing on your attention, it's been shared in the past, but I think this summer blocking off time in your calendar for yourself, just little stolen moments. After this crazy year, what we need is time to rest, recharge, re-engage with our creative sides so that hopefully when August comes and we start thinking about fall again, we feel ready for that. So whether it's putting on an away email message so folks know you're not going to be getting back to them right away or blocking off time in your calendar to go on a picnic or out to the beach or on a camping trip with your family. I hope everybody listening gets a little time to just take care of themselves and and get a break because you definitely deserve it and you need it before a new school year begins. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an engaging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more info or follow the link in the show notes.